Support for Valley Edition comes from the James Irvine Foundation, accepting nominations now for the 2023 James Irvine Foundation Leadership Awards at irvineawards.org. The California Endowment. Health happens when Californians value schools more than prisons. Learn more at calendow.org. The California Healthcare Foundation, working to build a more effective, compassionate, and just healthcare system. On the web at chcf.org health dash equity. From KVPR, you're listening to Valley Edition. I'm Kathleen Schock. On today's show, we hear from an openly gay Navy veteran about his fight to bring a LGBTQ student club to the private religious university he attends. And the winner of UC Merced's Grad Slam competition for graduate students talks about her CBD research. But first, the other California. KVPR's podcast all about the small towns of the San Joaquin Valley. This week's show focuses on Avenal in Kings County. And in this first story, we meet up with Avenal's city manager, who returned to his hometown after attending Georgetown. As KVPR's Sarith Hawk reports, he wasn't the only one in his family to boomerang. The inside of the Veterans Memorial Hall echoes with the crack of pool balls. Groups of players are clustered around billiard tables, pool cues in hand. In another corner, a caller leads a game of loteria, or Mexican bingo, as players stare intently at the colorful cards in front of them. Avenal city manager, Anthony Lopez, is here to meet with a city council member to see how the senior and nutrition program is going. But before he has his meeting, he directs me to one end of the bingo table where a woman is knitting. Look, we have one of the founders of Avenal. He introduces me to Donna Curdy, who worked hard to get Avenal Incorporated back in 1979. She started a petition which turned into a ballot initiative. But we won by 70 votes. Donna was also part of the committee that brought the state prison to Avenal. A lifelong resident, the 86-year-old remains engaged in her community. There she goes, complaining again. (laughs) She didn't think the city was improving quickly enough until Antony was hired. And now I see he's making changes, and I'm glad to see that. Antony started this job in 2020 at the height of the pandemic, and he led the effort to make Avenal one of the most highly vaccinated cities in Kings County. 73% of residents are fully vaccinated. My job here is to grow and develop a city I'd be proud to raise a family in. Back in his city office, Antony is met by his two older siblings who also live in Avenal. Their parents, who both immigrated from Mexico, were farm workers. The family is close-knit and driven, especially when it comes to education. You know, I think we've all just kind of tried to set our own paths, but we've all kind of ended up being kind of in the same realm <laughs> regardless. His older brother, Francisco, graduated from Yale. His sister, Leticia, graduated from Wellesley and Antony from Georgetown. All three were Avenal High School valedictorians. The Lopez siblings are part of a younger generation of Avenal natives taking leadership roles in their community. It's the first thing Francisco noticed when he moved back last year during the pandemic. A lot of my high school friends are either now teachers or principals. Francisco had lived in Phoenix and was most recently in the Bay Area. But then, a great opportunity at a community college in nearby Kalinga brought him home. I'm working at West Hills, and that is just kind of an amazing luck for all of it to kind of work together. He now works as West Hills Director of Special Grants, overseeing the National Farmworker Jobs Program that gives training and career support to farm workers. Unlike Francisco, Leticia returned to Avenal right after college in 2007. It wasn't necessarily my plan. I planned to come and be here for two, three years max, and then leave, uh, go back to like either the Bay Area or LA. But she found a job opportunity in Hanford at Adventist Health, where she works as director of grants. The family works together to connect each other to opportunities and resources. And it was a valley opportunity that exposed all the siblings to some of the country's top universities. It's called the Ivy League Project, and Francisco says it helped him pave the way for Leticia. 
I was a trailblazer in a lot of ways, um, but I also was just like bumping my head in, 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 into doors and trying to figure things out. Leticia, meanwhile, blazed her own trail as the first female in her family to go to college. She also took part in another college program that allowed students to attend Berkeley for the summer. She was only 14, so her parents were reluctant to let her go. The culture is different. Um, they didn't like me being alone and, you know, living in this house with, like, people they don't know. <laughs> but it was the kind of challenge she needed, she says. Exposure is really important, um, and that's why I always tell people, like, if you have a, a chance to do this, do it. You know, especially if it's free, especially if it's, you know, going to take you outside that box. Education is what allowed the siblings to leave Avenal to discover new ideas and places. But it's also what brought them back to invest in their hometown. For The Other California, I'm Sarith Hawk in Avenal. You're listening to Valley Edition. I'm Kathleen Schock. Staying with the Other California podcast and the town of Avenal, reporter Mavi Bolaños speaks to two high school students about a program that is helping to change their futures. Jesus Perez has always been academically inclined. Because growing up, I've always loved school, and school is like a passion for me, so it's not like something I feel like I have to do. I feel like it's something that I want to do. And he's always wanted to go to college, but his parents hadn't been, so he wasn't sure what to expect. A dual enrollment program between Avenal High School, where he's a senior, and West Hills Community College in nearby Kalinga has answered many of his questions. This program gives me so many resources and um, opportunities to navigate this process. Jesus' story is exactly why the program was created for kids who grow up in a rural area and may be the first in their family to go to college, says program director and assistant principal Victoria Gornick. Her father helped create the program nearly 10 years ago. They're able to get exposure to different courses that we might not offer as a campus. And the courses that they're taking actually fulfills their A through G requirements for high school. Classes needed to complete high school like math, science, and language arts, and the classes are taught right on campus. Gornick says the school tries to enroll every student in at least one dual immersion class. Right now, there are 320 students enrolled in one of the three pathways provided. Just because our students are from a rural area doesn't mean that they can't achieve and continue to be exposed to uh, rigorous curriculum and be exposed to those work-based learning experiences. There are three tracks students can take. One leads to a possible apprenticeship with the wonderful company. Another allows students to take a year of college classes before they leave high school. And the most rigorous pathway is the plant science AA degree. That's the one 16-year-old Emilio Nunez is doing. The junior started the program the summer before his freshman year and takes classes year-round. He also works in the fields to make some extra cash. I work with my mom, so it's kind of fine. I like helping her out at, at work as much as I can. So there's some times when I'm finished with my like side of my row, my row of the grapes, and I kind of go over there and help her out as well. Emilio's parents immigrated from Mexico over 20 years ago, and they're both farm workers. His dad is a foreman and his mom works seasonally, but Emilio says that life is too hard. It's really exhausting because the heat really, the heat really bothers me. That's one reason he's so diligent. He plans to go to Fresno State and then become an ag contractor, hopefully employing his dad. Meanwhile, Jesus, the senior, applied to five UCs and three CSUs, and he's been accepted by all of them. But I just know I want to go to law school. And just this week, he decided to accept an offer from UCLA. For The Other California, I'm Madi Bolaños in Avenal. This is Valley Edition. I'm Kathleen Schock. Classes wrap up this week at Fresno Pacific University, marking the end of an academic year that generated headlines and protest over the university's rejection of an LGBTQ student club called Birds for Pride. But despite the university's refusal to authorize the group, its members continue to meet off campus 
and push for inclusion. I spoke with club president Justin St. George about how the year unfolded. But first, he talked about how he came to study there. You know, my journey was unique in the sense that I'm not originally from the Central Valley. I'm actually uh, born and raised in uh, Boston, Massachusetts. And uh, after I graduated high school, a few weeks later, I actually left for uh, Navy boot camp. And so I had spent about uh, five and a half years active duty uh, with the United States Navy before I decided to uh, move to Fresno and, and settle here. The reason why I picked Fresno Pacific University was at the time, coming from a military background, I was a bit more conservative leaning those days. And I had thought that um, being a veteran going to a Christian institution that is known for their traditional conservative values that although they may not agree with my personal views of my sexuality, they'll at least have a place at the table for me because I'm a veteran. And so that's how I ended up at Fresno Pacific University. And a lot of people don't know that I really struggled. You know, I've been at Fresno Pacific University for about three years and at one point I was kicked out. I was academically disqualified. And it was because I later found out that I had a service-connected disability um, through my military service. And so after I had gotten kicked out, academically disqualified from FPU, it was kind of like the kick in the butt that I needed to go get mental health services at the Fresno VA, where unfortunately I did find out that uh, I had adjustment disorder with anxiety and depressive symptoms. The great thing is, though, Fresno Pacific University, the staff and the professors were all willing to work with me, make sure that I get the help that I needed and to get me back on track to make sure that I can graduate. So I'm very thankful for the academic staff and the professors uh, that are always looking out for the students, no matter what is actually happening um, outside of campus and within Fresno. I got involved with Birds for Pride because uh, last year I was in a Christian leadership course and one of these signature project assignments was to form a group and then with your group, try to find issues within the community that need fixing. One of the things that we had found was that the LGBTQ plus community on Fresno Pacific University <laughs> kind of didn't have a place on campus. If you look at the club list, there's a lot of diverse clubs at Fresno Pacific University. They are a Hispanic serving institution. And so that leaves room for a lot of diverse uh, communities, conversations, and individuals to really thrive. At the same time though, FEU is a Title IX exempt school. And we found that out through this project that being Title IX exempt, FPU can openly and actively discriminate against LGBTQ plus individuals. And so what started as a Christian leadership uh, group project turned into an actual reality. After we had presented it, uh, myself and my group members agreed that this was too big of an issue to just let go. It wasn't just a school project. You know, we're talking about student safety and that people feeling comfortable on campus. And so that's how Birds for Pride got started. It originated as a Christian leadership uh, group project. And it sort of just kind of snowballed into the unofficial, official, unofficial LGBTQ Pride Club of Fresno Pacific University. Well, let's talk about this official, unofficial, official club. You know, where do things stand today? Yeah, we've had an amazing first year with Birds for Pride. Um, a lot of people kept telling us every time we did something, they were like, oh, that's great. You know, people will remember that forever. And, you know, that was sort of our mentality going through this whole thing where no matter what happens with the future of the actual pride club, it will live on forever. Whether someone takes the mantle next week, next month, next year, we're confident that the progress that we've made along with the people that have come before us and the leaders that have come before us will certainly help students in the future. The club recently had a demonstration on campus that was very successful uh, that was at a time when the accrediting body was visiting, and we were able to get some face time uh, with uh, the WASC individuals visiting the campus. Unfortunately, however, WASC did end up declining my formal complaint, although there's still some things being worked on with that. I think there's um, some communication issues as well as I feel personally that there are a lot of bodies of power that probably could do the right thing in this instance, say like WASC. So I think WASC chose not to investigate what we had formally complained about because of 
existing Title IX federal laws. And I think ultimately, in order for there to be any significant change without Christian leaders themselves on campus coming out and supporting, like the board of trustees coming out and supporting the club, uh, I think the only thing that's going to make LGBTQ plus students safe on campus is Title IX reform. And so, although we weren't able to get the club officially uh, on campus, I'm confident that we created a space for students to use in the future. And also to know that there's a lot of support in the community and it doesn't even have to be a club. It could be anything. The point is there are Christian leaders out there in the Central Valley that love and care about our LGBTQ plus youth. So I, I have to ask you this question and I suspect it's one that you get all the time, but do you regret going to Fresno Pacific? That's a great question. It's something that I'm actually currently battling. And like I said earlier, a lot of people don't know that I suffer from adjustment disorder. And this whole process with FPU has actually been incredibly therapeutic for me as a veteran struggling to get back into society and feel <laughs> and feel normal or feel belonged in society. So it's in a weird way, being rejected almost makes me feel accepted. Um, but to, to the point of, do I regret going to Fresno Pacific University? I will say I'm the type of person that lives the life uh, mantra of no regrets. Everything happens for a reason. And even all the negative stuff, even the worst stuff in the world, it's to make you a better person. And whether that's God challenging you or, or whatever else that you believe in. I do think it's disappointing that I used my GI Bill <laughs> at an institution like this. And I, and I think it's really disappointing that the school is able to openly discriminate against a disabled veteran like me. Uh, and that's legally allowed. And they're allowed to be a yellow ribbon program as well. I don't understand the semantics of that, I guess. And I think that that goes back to my understanding of the civilian world and, and, and you know, the real world <laughs> serving in the military brings an enormous amount of privilege. And yeah, so yeah, this I whole actually, experience at Fresno Pacific University has allowed me to sort of check my own privilege and realize, hey, there are way more people in the world that are having a worse experience than you. And they do not have the same opportunities that are presented to you, either based on your status, your skin color, whatever it may be. And so that's why I try to keep a positive outlook on my experience at Fresno Pacific University, because although I used my GI Bill to attend, I, I do like to think that it, it was for a good reason. <laughs> ask, me, ask me in a few years. <laughs> well, so I did wanted to ask you about your time in the, in the Navy and how that experience informed the work that you did as a leader here in Fresno. Yeah, I'll say... Um, and I don't think I've publicly said this, but Fresno Pacific University has done a, a great job exasperating the symptoms of my disability with, with this entire experience. But also it kind of opened up my eyes because what a world we live in where I served openly gay. And I know, I know there were trans um, individuals and uh, just other members of the LGBTQ plus community and we just served in the military. We openly served. Nobody cared. You did your job. That's all they cared about. And so to be respected and highly valued in a place like the United States military, to then come to a place like Fresno Pacific University, it was definitely a, a culture, a reality and culture shock. And again, it, it goes to my previous point of, you know, I just have an amount, uh, an enormous amount of privilege. And there are a lot of people in the community that don't. And I think creating space for the people that don't have those opportunities and that constantly face pushback and resistance. That's why it's so important to have a space like this where they feel uh, accepted and welcome and loved because that, that little space could make the difference of someone's education experience. We, we all have things going on in our real world. And in order to balance the, the college life, along with extracurricular activities, our personal lives, our social lives, if you add in any sort of discrimination into that, that just complicates everything. And I think that's what we should be talking about more is how this is really ultimately damaging the, the college experience for everyone, not just LGBTQ plus individuals. The school's actions have affected straight heterosexual uh, faculty members, faculty members that were unanimously approved by the search committee. Um, adjunct professors that, that were uh, approved by search committees for full-time jobs. 
they were denied just because of their own stance on the issue. And that's only because they want to love everyone. And so I think that's why this issue is important for everyone, not just if you're LGBTQ plus or if you know someone who's LGBTQ plus. Given you know your disability, given just the enormity of, of the stress associated with the advocacy work that you've done, how has your mindfulness practice, which I, I know you've talked about publicly before, how has that helped you navigate this journey? That is such a great question. Mindfulness really helped me cope with my disability. It was something that I had learned in therapy from the therapist that I was going to at the Fresno VA. Mindfulness has allowed me to just sort of <laughs> live in the moment. And I guess that's the best way you could describe mindfulness to someone who is unfamiliar with the practice. Being able to identify and walk with my anxiety, being able to identify and walk with my depression, because before I had understood mindfulness and went to therapy, I was suppressing a lot of things. And, so, and I catch myself doing this too, but I, I can at least kind of catch myself now. But before it was much easier to allow the anger to sort of control me or allow my depression or anxiety to sort of dictate um, the inner workings of my, of my daily life. But with mindfulness, it really allows you to slow down, take a breath and to work with the cards that you're given. You know, we're not all perfect. Um, and we all experience sadness, frustration and resources like mindfulness are, are really helpful. And I highly encourage everyone to explore the practice of mindfulness. Well, I have to say you are, you've proven yourself to be an extraordinary leader and I know that you are graduating. Yeah, next week. I can't believe it. <laughs> so what's next for you? Honestly, I'm just trying to land on my feet with the job right now. And I'm not too worried about that. Bigger picture for me, I would love to stay involved in the Central Valley. And so ultimately, no matter what happens after I graduate, as long as this issue exists, I think there will be leaders like me out there that'll step up to the plate and not be afraid to stick up for those who may not be able to stick up for themselves. Well, I've been talking with Justin St. George, president of Birds for Pride. Justin, thank you so much for, for being on the show. Thank you, Kathleen. I appreciate uh, your time. Thank you so much. You're listening to Valley Edition. I'm Kathleen Shock. One of the tools that California is considering in its fight against climate change is carbon sequestration, which involves storing carbon dioxide underground. Today, CSU Bakersfield held a symposium on the technology. And to learn more, KVPR's Carrie Klein spoke with Anthony Rathburn before the event. He's the chair of the CSUB Geology Department and also the interim director of the department that organized the symposium the California Energy Research Center. The California Energy Research Center is relatively new. It only started 2014. And one of its primary goals is to bring in and organize research teams to help make the transition to a different energy world, if you will. So workforce transitions, alternative forms of energy, um, how they're going to work from battery to biofuel to oil and gas to solar uh, to wind. We have those experts here at CSU Bakersfield and to bring in teams and to organize that effort and also to train students to become part of a quality workforce in the region. That's one of the objectives of the California Energy Research Center. Okay, and now let's talk about the topic of this symposium, carbon sequestration. Can you tell me what is carbon sequestration? How does it work? Carbon sequestration basically is removal of carbon dioxide uh, from the atmosphere and sequestering it away in some form or another. And the purpose of it is to remove uh, CO2, which is a greenhouse gas, and to help mitigate climate change. And there's different types of carbon sequestration. Geological uh, carbon sequestration is where CO2 is removed from the atmosphere and sequestered away, pumped into porous rock underground, which is sealed by other rocks so that it can escape. And so the idea then is to sequester that carbon away, remove it from the atmosphere, 
and provide uh, mitigation efforts for climate change. And so we're not talking about like a, a vast underground cavern filled with a gas, but it's usually pressurized and liquefied, but and then, as you said, injected into these rock formations underground. Yes, absolutely. So what happens is that the CO2 is liquefied under pressure, and that is injected as a fluid into these porous rock formations. And again, it's critical that the rocks surrounding these porous rocks be uh, sealing rocks so that the, the liquid doesn't escape. This technique is commonly used uh, in uh, oil extraction to enhance oil extraction. So this is a technique that's well known by oil and gas companies. This symposium has quite an array of speakers. You know, you have a faculty there at the school, but of course also county planners, oil industry representatives, also some scientists from Lawrence Livermore National Lab. So who are you expecting to attend the symposium? What are you hoping that they'll take away from it? Well, I'm hoping that everyone with an interest in climate change or carbon sequestration or even just community members in the valley that are interested in workforce transitions and what's going on in their environment will be able to take away something from this symposium. So the symposium isn't just for experts, though we have lots of them on tap in our lineup of speakers and panelists. Uh, it's for everyone. So students, teachers, et cetera, um, I think we'll be able to get something out of this symposium. We're going to start from why and how and what, what carbon sequestration is, why it's important, how it's related to climate change. And we're going to move to policy to discuss all of these aspects of carbon sequestration so we can move forward in this transition in the, the objective of making the best decisions about carbon sequestration in the valley. Why is Bakersfield a place to hold this symposium? What, what is the importance of Kern County and the Central Valley, the San Joaquin Valley, in, um, in the future of California's carbon sequestration? Sure. The, the valley in Kern County, in particular the San Joaquin Basin, has been identified as a perfect place for carbon sequestration. So the geology is, is perfect there. We also have the workforce that is very well trained in the techniques because they're used commonly uh, in, in the oil and gas industry. There's also a lot of data from the subsurface in this area because of oil and gas uh, exploration, as well as uh, a lot of aquifer uh, research that's been going on in the area. So that combination makes this area and Kern County in particular in the San Joaquin Basin, a perfect uh, location for carbon sequestration. And then of course, Bakersfield being located in Kern County and CSU Bakersfield being the only four-year university within a hundred miles, we're perfectly placed uh, to be able to address these issues. In addition, CSU Bakersfield has a lot of researchers uh, from a wide variety of different disciplines that focus on energy and not only oil and gas, but alternative energy. And so bringing all of those folks together and in this region, it's a, it's a perfect place for the symposium. There's a lot of attention here in this area to the underground aquifers where we get our drinking water and, of course, the depletion of that and overpumping of that. Um, if we were to be pumping uh, carbon dioxide back into the subsurface, would that be happening in similar areas to where we're also pulling out groundwater? Or is there not really an overlap between these different rock formations that we'd be using for these purposes? Now, one of the concerns uh, always when you're pumping in or, or out materials from underground is contamination of drinking water. So that's a, that's a major concern. However, again, because we have a lot of information about the geology of the subsurface in the, in the region because of oil and gas exploration and because of a lot of research, as you mentioned, with uh, aquifers, we understand the geology pretty well. And so when we're pumping CO2 into particular formations underground, those formations are sealed by surrounding rock. And again, that's a real concern and we have to know the, the subsurface geology really well to be confident that when we pump this material back in, 
that we're not contaminating our drinking water or any underground aquifers. And so since oil companies have been doing this for a very long time, pumping materials both in and out of the ground, and we, there's always been a concern about aquifers in the region, again, we have all of this knowledge that we can now apply to carbon sequestration. So that gives us the confidence that we are targeting the right formations, that we have the right information that, that those liquids, uh, those gases, et cetera, are not going to migrate and cause us problems in the future. A really interesting synergy with the oil and gas industry. I also think it's notable that there are oil industry speakers on the docket there as part of this symposium. Kern County, of course, being the heart of California's oil industry, and at least historically, the industry has at times challenged efforts to combat climate change. So what is the relationship today you know, between oil and gas and climate change combating efforts like carbon sequestration? Sure. Uh, oil companies have to be part of the solution. And uh, the major oil companies here in the Valley all have a carbon management team where they're working to reduce the carbon footprint. And many of them are also working on carbon sequestration strategies where they can use their expertise, use their knowledge to then pump CO2 back into the ground, which again is something that they have the technology and the knowledge uh, and the workforce to be able to do in this region. So oil companies are working together with other efforts here, including carbon sequestration, to help mitigate uh, their carbon footprint. And the writings on the wall, there's a transition from oil and gas based, entirely oil, oil and gas based to alternative energies. And that's really happening here in Kern County. Kern County has been labeled as the energy county or energy center of California. And it's not just because of our history with oil and gas, but because we also have wind, solar, geothermal, and uh, other and biofuels and other forms of alternative energy that are really expanding dramatically in Kern County. So uh, Kern County is making that transition, oil companies are making the transition, and we need everybody on board to help mitigate climate change. Great. Well, Anthony Rathburn, chair of the CSU Bakersfield Geology Department and interim director of the California Energy Research Center, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thank you very much. The symposium took place today, but a recording will be available on the CSUB website. This is Valley Edition. I'm Kathleen Schock. Graduate students at UC Merced were asked to distill their scholarly work into a three-minute presentation that is accessible to the general public. And earlier this month, they went head-to-head -head as part of the university's Grad Slam competition. I spoke to the winner, PhD candidate Jessica Wilson, about her presentation, CBD, Wonder Drug, or Dud? Well, my research really focuses on investigating the effects of cannabidiol, or CBD, on high blood pressure, obesity, and other metabolic disorders like diabetes. And what, is, what have you found? Well, interestingly, I found that when we administered um, a rather high chronic dose of CBD orally, that in this translational model, we used uh, a rat model that mimics the human condition. We found that this dose duration and the, um, and the amount actually reduced elevated blood pressure in these animals. They're also afflicted with um, poor glucose tolerance, which essentially means that they're diabetic as well. So we also noted that their blood cholesterol reduced as well as their um, insulin resistance index. So we, we found that it, it appeared that this treatment of CBD made these diabetic rats more sensitive to their own insulin. That is significant. That's really exciting, isn't it? It's incredibly exciting. And I, you, you know, a lot of people say that science is, is mostly luck. Um, and I, and I feel like we've gotten so lucky um, in our investigation of the literature and identifying the gap in our understanding and 
really, you know, giving it a, a shot to see what happens because, you know, people are interested. What interested you in this topic? What, as a researcher, what uh, connected you to this, uh, you know, research around CBD? Well, I'm a California native, so I've been around in California for quite a while. And I, I witnessed this, this ongoing debate over legalization of, of marijuana cannabis. And really what I noted was that we don't really understand what it does. There's really an absence in the in the scientific literature on what exactly does cannabis do um, in healthy individuals, in sick individuals. We just don't really understand. And because the interest in cannabis has become so pervasive, I mean, we see that in public sentiment shifts and and uh, legislature shifts. You know, cannabis was just recently federally decriminalized there's a greater interest in also the subparts of cannabis. So not just the whole plant, but also um, chemicals that the plant produces. CBD happens to be one of them. It's the most abundant chemical produced by the plant. And we found that there's really no literature that can explain what exactly it does. But what we have seen is a collection of epidemiological studies that noted that people who admitted to using cannabis in um, consistently or chronically, that they had a lower body mass index and a reduction of some of these risk factors for diseases like cardiovascular disease and diabetes. So we wondered if maybe CBD could be doing this or could be modulating this because it is the most abundant product produced by the plant. And so that's, that was really our question. It's very straightforward and it hadn't been done before, particularly in this condition of a, um, a dysfunction of the metabolism that is a risk factor for um, conditions like diabetes and cardiovascular disease. And of course we know that, you know, both diabetes and cardiovascular disease um, cause so many deaths, particularly here in the Central Valley. Particularly here in the Central Valley, exactly. So I want to talk a little bit about this grad slam contest uh, that you won. Congratulations, first and foremost. You know, for that contest, you had to take this very complex research and distill it down to a three-minute presentation. Uh, what was that process like for you? I watched a lot of TED Talks <laughs> to help me sort of gather my thoughts. And I had a lot of uh, of course, a lot of drafts. This, this took a lot of um, tweaking and, and finesse and um, soundboarding off of not just my my fellow colleagues, fellow academics, fellow scientists, but um, also people in my immediate um, vicinity and beyond who were not academics, who were not scientists, and asked for that feedback. And um, really, I prefer to relay research in a way that's accessible to more people than just, you know, my, my advisor or my mentor or, or my lab mates, because this is for people. And especially with a topic such as this, it really is incumbent upon myself and, and others who, who partake in this research to explain it in a way that is accessible for people who have immediate access to these products. And help them to responsibly inform them of what are some of the benefits, maybe some of the risks, because we're, we're really trying to catch up. Science is, is way behind, has been outpaced by consumerism of cannabis products. And, and, and just to your point, we should provide some context. So for those who are listening who uh, perhaps are diabetic or uh, have hypertension, the message here is not to go out and, and get super stoned, I, I'm assuming, right? That's absolutely not the message. <laughs> okay. What is the message? Uh, the message is we're starting to understand what these products do. We have a, we have a lot to catch up on because really it's, it's not an easy feat to partake in cannabis or, um, or cannabis tangential research. There's a lot of 
um, there are a lot of barriers to the research that um, are some are prohibitive. They're time consuming. Um, they're labor intensive, and I think it to I think to a large extent they're they're worth it. And I was so grateful that I have an advisor that is that patiently waded through those um, those barriers and successfully navigated them with me. Because without that contribution, we certainly wouldn't have been able to accomplish what we've been able to share. But I think we're we're going to start to see a, a real uptick in the amount of people who can participate in this research and in that that can conduct this this research with the federal decriminalization. I, this is going to remove so many barriers um, to access to this research. And I think we're just going to be able to start to catch up to the pace of consumerism of these products to help us better understand exactly what's happening. So before we wrap up, I would like to mention that on May 6th, next what, next Friday, you'll be competing in the big event against other UC campuses and, and that folks can live stream that and, and cast a vote for you in the People's Choice Award. So uh, that's I just want to make sure we mention that point. Yes, please do watch. There's incredible science going on across the UC system. So I, I hope people take interest in and catch a few talks if they can. Do vote for me though. <laughs> <laughs> I've been talking with Jessica Wilson, a UC Merced PhD candidate in qualitative and systems biology. Jessica, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much, Kathleen. And finally, Marina Holiday is a Ukrainian-born ceramicist who lives in Fresno. As the Russian invasion unfolds in her homeland, Holiday is using her connections to the local arts community to raise awareness and money for the people of Ukraine. Growing up in Kyiv was really amazing. And that time when I grew up, it was still Soviet Union, and uh, Ukraine was part of big Soviet Union empire. You know, as a kid, I didn't understand that. Even I saw my parents and their friends always had a, like kitchen talks and um, probably mostly then didn't like the politics and that uh, mostly in Ukraine, we, especially in Kiev, we spoke Russian instead of Ukraine, Ukrainian, which now I really regret. I wish I knew more, more and understand more. And the education um, was, I think, wonderful except maybe uh, history and literature, everything Ukrainian wasn't those days taught well. It's changed now and I'm very happy about that. Do you still have family in Ukraine? I do. My family, it's not very big. I have two cousins and one lives in Ukraine, one lives in Moscow, their brother and sister. And the one of uh, the one who lives in Ukraine, she has a daughter who lives in Moscow. You know, we all interconnected with um, Russia and um, and Ukraine. Always were neighboring, friendly countries, and it's really sad to see what's going on right now. So, have you been able to reach out or, or connect with your family? Are they okay? Yes, I. In the beginning, I was calling them every morning and every evening. And uh, a lot of them, uh, all my family and friends are fine. Uh, Fortunately, uh, a lot of women with children left the country. Some of them staying, they don't want to leave. And um, some of them doctors, they could not leave. They want to stay with their patients. And recently, I hear more and more people are going back to Kiev. They, you know, they're struggling to live as the refugees, and they, they're going back, especially the older people. The ones who have little children, they still stay in, like, western part of Ukraine, in Lviv and Carpath- Carpathian Mountains, or they are all over the Europe. It must 
be so harrowing for you to watch the news, for you to see the images that are coming from Ukraine. How, how are you doing? It's terrifying. Yeah. I, I don't even have more tears to tell you the truth. In the beginning, it, it was unbelievable. And it's still unbelievable that something like that could happen. Oh, and what you see on the news, it's, yeah, it's atrocious. Well, I know that from the very beginning of the invasion, Russian invasion, you have been finding tangible ways to uh, support Ukraine. Tell us a little bit about some of the efforts that, that you have undertaken. I am uh, a member of Scarab Creative Arts Studio. And since the water, uh, war began, I thought about how I can help. You know, my daughter and I were sending packages uh, to our friends and relatives, but it feels like it's not enough. I need to raise awareness um, of that and do something, you know. And all I can do right now, I, um, I became a ceramic artist and I started making pins and uh, necklaces featuring Ukrainian flag colors. They are all different designs. And, um, and I put them out at the first art hub, which was in April. And since then, uh, also at the, uh, our gallery gift shop, I sell all my artwork and all proceeds going to Ukraine. And only in the first art hub, I raised over $3,000 in first two hours. And now I'm close to um, $7,000 just uh, asking for donation for those pins and necklaces and selling my own, my own ceramic artwork. Part of uh, the donation went to World Central Kitchen, Jose Andreas World Central Kitchen. And most of it uh, went to uh, Doctors Without Borders and the rest of the money we are collecting right now will go to uh, Doctors Without Borders as well. And then beyond the Scarab Creative Arts Gallery, what are some of the other places where people could uh, pick up those pens and, and make a donation? I took um, some to Root General, which located in downtown Fresno. And also uh, there is another ceramic studio. It's called um, Claymix. They have a variety of all... Um, my pins and necklaces. Also, we will have in Fresno uh, upcoming show. One uh, will be at Lutheran Church on Bullard and Palm on Mother's Day weekend, I believe Saturday, May 7. Uh, they will be available there. And in Clovis Free Market, it's the same day. Uh, one of my studio members, they will have it uh, there as well. And then there's the silent auction coming up in, in conjunction yes, with Art Hop. Yes, Tell us about that. The, it's turned so wonderful. Uh, so far, we got so many donations. You know, as atrocities in, uh, of the war continue, and my friend and I are trying to find some other ways to help Ukraine and Ukrainian people. And one friend of mine, she had this idea. And um, next Art Hop on May, Fifth, we will have a regular show in our gallery, uh, and uh, we have a big studio space and a big uh, gift shop space, and it will be all designated to silent action. And um, we will have a big assortment um, of art uh, donated by local artists, and some people even sent from Montana. Uh, some piece of uh, jewelry art, which I'm so thankful. But local artists were wonderful and so supporting. And uh, I feel this outpouring support and uh, it feels wonderful. We have probably around two dozen artists who already donate and uh, more is coming. 
of paintings and ceramic art and stained glass art, glass blown uh, pieces and some handmade garments, what else? some jewelry pieces. And I encourage everyone to come for our art hub and enjoy the show and please look for the silent auction. I believe you can find some wonderful pieces of art there and uh, it will all go to the good coast. Your work, your efforts to raise money must be giving you some sense of of peace to have something to do with your hands um, in this just unimaginable situation. For the rest of us, what can we do? What would you ask your fellow residents of the Central Valley to do to show their solidarity for the people of Ukraine? I just want for people don't forget and don't have like news fatigue about that and be aware what's going on in Ukraine and that Ukraine stands alone against that unthinkable aggression and saving not only its own land, its own country and people, but it saves all of us right now. And I want for people to understand that and see that. And Ukraine, it's quite small compared to Russian monstrosity. It's what I kind of try to encourage by asking for donations, which it's not as important as just awareness. I've been talking to um, ceramics artist Marina Holiday um, about her work to raise money to support uh, the people of Ukraine. Marina, thank you so much for, for sharing your story with us and for the work that you're doing. Oh, thank you. And that's today's Valley Edition. You could hear all this and more on our website, kvpr.org. You could also download the podcast and find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We've got an app. It's called KVPR. The show was produced by our news team, including Alice Daniel, Carrie Klein, Mavi Bolaños, and Sarith Hawk. Technical support is from Don Weaver. I'm your host, Kathleen Schock. Thanks for listening. Support for Valley Edition comes from the James Irvine Foundation, accepting nominations now for the 2023 James Irvine Foundation Leadership Awards at irvineawards.org. The California Endowment. Health happens when Californians value schools more than prisons. Learn more at calendow.org. The California Healthcare Foundation, working to build a more effective, compassionate, and just healthcare system. On the web at chcf.org/health-equity.